Um, do you hear that howling? I hear someone howling. Um, Kawana is Kawana is sitting in the kitchen and shouting the way that he shouts when he gets uh, put in his carrier. Oh, uh, what's wrong with him? We don't. We don't know. What's Kawana, going on? My mother wants to know what's wrong with you. Welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. We're back for another dose of infinite jest. Uh, we planned to get through page 95 today, thinking that we were free of lengthy endnotes, but in my haste last week, I failed to notice an endnote that refers us to a much longer endnote. So uh, some of us have not yet reached that uh, page mark. We're just going to kind of go and see where we wind up. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with my fellow rereader, Brianna. Hello. Hello. And we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi. And our friend, Vinny. Hiya. I had a good laugh over the, the rather late uh, announcement that maybe we wanted to read less. After <laughs> oh, I had, yeah. After I had, I, I thought, well, I can easily read this last bit before I go to bed. And then I read it, and then I landed in the endless note with the fine print. And, mm -hmm. I, and I struggled through it, trying to I have to, to apologize because and then, I swear well, that I fine, checked you know? the pages, was, like the, I, the pages ahead, and I cross-referenced where the end notes were. Uh -huh. And I yeah, didn't see did. any big remember, end notes. I specifically remember you saying that there aren't going to be any big end notes in the next bunch. Yeah, and so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> what I failed to account for is that some endnotes refer to oh, other long oh, endnotes. Right. Oh, right. It was a. It was a. It was a footnote says, in the endnote. An endnote in the endnote. C three hundred four or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, long story short, uh, I have not read past page eighty-five. So, but you two have. You've read to ninety-five. Uh, I've read to ninety-five. Yeah, I have too. Um, yep. Well, but we can stop anywhere. Let's see. I mean, let's see what kind of momentum we get going. Because okay. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to sit back and let the two of you talk through that part, and then Brianna and I can catch up for next week. Okay. Whatever. However, it works out is good. Okay. We'll see. Does anybody remember where we left off? Was it sixty-eight or something like that? Yeah. We were ready for the part about. It, it's uh, um, the, 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 the tennis the, nightmare. On the yeah, and getting ready oh, for the... Oh, yeah. Right. Also, uh, to follow up, I've got a brief summation of the Wikipedia article on the Enfield poltergeist. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Oh, my gosh. Because yeah. Enfield Should... comes up again in this, in this yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. So, in a different so, way. Um, and I wondered about your, your poltergeist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why don't we let's hold off on that until we get to Enfield. Um, okay. But I, I'm so excited to hear about that. Me too. Okay. Um, although just a quick spoiler alert. It's not Enfield in Massachusetts. It is Enfield as a borough of London. So, oh. yeah. Oh, but I still want to know about it. I want to know okay. about it. Ditto. too. So 
We start off in a hospital. Yes. This is... How did people feel about this section? I thought it was one of the more empathetic and truthful parts of this book so far. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, I think so, too. It it also seemed so, like, I understood what was going on. I mean, yeah. it's a real clear sort of story of Kate Gompert's just distress and mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. And perhaps a statement about distress of other characters that we've already met in the book. Right. It gives but a more calmer she, look at it all. It's funny because she the, the experience that she describes with marijuana is like almost identical to the experience described in the chapter about Erdetti. And yet she's right. so much more sympathetic. Yeah. Right. Right. And I, I can't tell if that's just like the narrative framing of the scene or something to do with her, the degree of self-awareness that she has about what's going on. She does seem more self-aware than her daddy does. I mm-hmm. mean, he is aware enough to put his uh, voicemail to, I'm not answering calls right now, but at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, I feel like Wallace in general has more empathy for mm-hmm. uh, Gompert. And I feel like um, she just has more truthfulness to her. Yes. And yet, I would say uh, uh, he has a fair amount of disdain for psychiatric doctors. Right. Yeah. I thought the, is he a resident? The doctor that's talking to her. And the book makes him sound like a fairly incompetent sort, you know, like he's got really nothing to offer and he doesn't, he doesn't really know what to say and he doesn't really know what to do. And yet he comes across as very, uh, I mean, the overall impression is that he's listening to her, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's, not being dismissive or so I don't know. Was, I don't know. I didn't necessarily read the doctor as being incompetent or anything. In fact, I mean, I found it. I mean, once again, the descriptor that I go back to is truthful mm-hmm. that, you know, sometimes, I mean, you know, speaking from personal experience, when you're talking about, you know, some pretty heavy things with psychiatrists, sometimes they really don't have any idea what to do with it and Mm -hmm. they're listening and that's good and useful. But, um, I found that he was desperately trying to figure out how to help and that he knew that electroshock therapy, which, you know, is what Gompert, uh, wants, um, wouldn't necessarily be helpful. Uh, but at the same time, he kind of he's just kind of at a standstill. Like he doesn't know what to do with any of this information, but he wants to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess when I said that he, that he's kind of portrayed as being sort of incompetent, maybe what I meant was that he seemed, I thought he seemed to feel like he was thrown into the, his psych rotation and he really wasn't prepared to be there. I guess that's what I meant. I, I, the, the sense that I get from his depiction is that he's like, 
competent in in the sense that he's been trained in these things, but part of his training like I, I think that the his depiction isn't just a, a criticism of him as a character. It's like a criticism no. of the way this healthcare system works. Right. That he's right. been trained to not uh, connect to people on a personal level, but instead to like feign connection and feign understanding because those things are clinically desirable. I don't know that I want to cast aspersions on him though, because he seems genuinely kind. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I agree. I. It's like when I first started reading, I'm thinking, "Oh, here's this guy. Here's this doctor who maybe, maybe doesn't belong here exactly, or he needs more super." I mean, he just feels he feels ill prepared. He seems mm-hmm. he sounds ill prepared to help her. And my first thought was that it was going to go nowhere. The conversation would thus go nowhere because he's. He's not really prepared to to be doing what he's supposed to be doing, but that as you read through the through the the story, you see that in spite of the fact, like Brianna said, he's he comes across as really kind and really curious and really wanting to know mm-hmm. really what what does yeah. that feel like? And so even though perhaps he felt ill prepared, at least he has the he has the desire. Right. Yeah, and, and, when, and that that pulls him through, and and actually makes him more effective than if he were a great clinician who came in with you know the like more more um, what should I say more canned questions and responses and and maybe somebody who's been doing it longer and is more prepared would uh, would not be as effective as he is because he's admitting really that he doesn't know what to do, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. And I think when you compare this doctor with some of the other professionals, and um, I feel like we've seen other doctors, but maybe not. Um, but yeah, just kind of other professionals who are meant to show empathy or anything like that. I mean, specifically like that very first chapter we read right. with the school administration staff. I mean, when you compare how this doctor is acting to a lot of the other people that we've seen, um, he's showing a great deal of empathy, I feel. Um, That's kind of hinting at what I mean when I say truthful, that it's a very honest section, a section that's written from, I feel like, almost autobiographic part, and it's kind of very removed from the rest of the book so far in that way. Yeah, I do wonder about that. Brianna, you had something? I agree. And I wonder if it's also a commentary on professionalism. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Mm -hmm. another quote-unquote expert that we're seeing is James O. and Ken Denza posing as a conversationalist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Doctor, which I interpreted as kind of like a speech therapist of sorts. Yeah. Um, And... He's also wildly ineffective in that role, probably because he's pretending so hard. Right. But right. this doctor has a lot of candor and is upfront with, like Norma said, the things that he doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so here, this is, this is the section that I was looking for. Uh, 
Catherine Gompert seemed to come out of her dark reverie for a moment. She stared full frontal at the doctor for several seconds, and the doctor, who'd had all discomfort at being stared at by patients trained right out of him when he'd rotated through the paralysis plegia wards upstairs, was able to look directly back at her with a kind of bland compassion, the expression of someone who was compassionate but was not, of course, feeling what she was feeling, and who honored her subjective feelings by not even trying to pretend that he was sharing them. Which is kind of counseling 101, though. Right. Yeah, it seems right. like... So this is this is why I'm a little uncomfortable with the, nar- the narration, because the way I read it, it seems to cast aspersions on that degree of professionalism. But I think that the professionalism is valuable, and it's the point of, of a, like a, a good psychiatric doctor doesn't try to make friends with his patients. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's and a good psychiatric doctor does learn this kind of bedside manner, and and learns how to deploy it effectively and consistently. But it seems like the the criticism that's being leveled against him is that he's like fake in some way or something. Yeah, right. like he's faking yeah. it. I don't know where that's coming from in the narration. It makes me wonder what David Foster Wallace's personal opinions on psychotherapy are or or psychiatric medicine are yeah um but you know the 90s were not a very enlightened time for understanding of psychiatric medicine yeah and i think that probably some of that attitude is coming across in this you know i could see that yeah can you can someone explain to me what I think I've seen it referred to other places, the term being unipolar. So it's her, it's her type of depression um, as opposed to bipolar depression. Is there a unipolar Mm -hmm. depression? Is there? Yes. I have just searched that online. Thank you. Um, And the internet tells me that it unipolar basically means clinical depression. Yeah, oh. like yeah, major that's depression. What I was oh, okay. Whereas bipolar is characterized by Yeah, bits of mania and bits of depression. Right. Mm-hmm. So is Hal depressed? Is that why he think, says that people can't understand him? <laughs> I don't know. And he says I his father can't maybe. hear him talking. And if Hal has like I could see that, but I don't I don't know that Hal comes across to me as being particularly depressed. How many no, people do you know who are depressed and lots. come off as depressed? That's a fair question. I mean, well, yeah, that's fair. We haven't seen, we mm-hmm. haven't spent much time with Hal. So it could be something that he hides. Well, um, also certain- his uh, interest in sneaking around and doing the marijuana. Well, uh, it, which is also like identical to what Kate Gompert describes, right, the whole right. obsession with whether or not anyone right. knows. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like the universality of that experience and the way it applies to Erdetti and Hal makes me wonder whether there's something specific about this Bob Hope strain of marijuana that's being sold uh-huh. by this dealer in Boston has Who something. Who connected to again, right? That's, that's where Because it all seems Gompert to come from the same dealer, stuff. right? Yeah, as yeah. your daddy. Yeah. The guy yeah, with the um, snakes in the tank in the trailer. Mm-hmm. I just generally thought that the descriptions of the experience of depression to be really well handled um they're very nuanced yeah mm-hmm. 
And I appreciate that nuance. I think that depression, when it gets written about, usually gets written about in a really superficial way. Um, Character sad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, her her attempt to describe how she feels to the doctor is really, it's really complicated and really, you, you understand a little bit more of the, of the kind of despair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also found like her describing um, her suicidal tendencies, uh, particularly mm-hmm. it's not wanting to hurt myself, it's wanting to not hurt as uh, mm-hmm. something uh, very truthful mm-hmm. and yeah, nuanced and yeah. Just generally, I think Kate Gompert, I, I'm, I don't remember how much more we see of her. I remember her coming back at least a few times. And I'm excited mm-hmm. for that because I, I really like her as a character. I like the, yeah. the kind of um, like interpersonal chess she plays with what she's willing to reveal and kind of toying with the doctor about whether or not he can tell that she's joking about things. Uh-huh. Um, e- even like when to make eye contact and when to look away. It just feels like it's a really cohesive person that we're meeting here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? She mentions one floor over the cuckoo's nest briefly in what? her in her discussion of uh she, she well she mentions Jack Nicholson although she calls him Jack Nichols or something like that. Where? Uh it's when she's talking about at, she wants ECT. Oh yeah, yeah. Um I don't see Jack Nichols but on 78 pretty near the break there I see um uh, that old cartridge, Nichols and the Big Indian. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, that. right. And, and she, so she's oh. talking about how how ECT is not as bad as people say that it is, mm-hmm. which is interesting right. because I'm I'm not sure where this stands right now, but uh, I I remember from my AP Psych class in high school some discussion of ECT and its use in psychiatric medicine. Um, ECT is one of those things that was developed by somebody who, like, had no idea what they were talking about and mm-hmm. and thought, like, well, we could just fix their brains by running lots of electricity through them. It's like that, rebooting that, it. Yeah, electricity is magic. Let's something. see what it does. Yeah. I mean, they did the same thing with magnets and stuff because, they, mm-hmm. they was, you know, people didn't understand. And so they thought they'd just try it. Um, and, and so for a long time, like, up through the 60s and 70s, ECT was used for anxiety and and like hysteria and and other things um didn't carrie fisher receive ect carrie fisher i think received ect um a number of a lot of women a lot of uh famous women who had psychiatric problems received ect in the 60s and 70s interesting um it is still you it's its use has tapered off significantly but by the 90s, and I think still today, it w- it's still used to treat severe depression and seems to have some efficacy against depression. Um, well, it's it, probably getting a lot more precise, precision-driven and stimulating, um, like a I tiny part of your brain. I don't think brain, that it is. No, that it's, not it's true? still, the, like, the, the, the process is still roughly the same. And the mechanism by which it works is not, I, well, well she's, Kate Gompert says, though, it's not like, it, in, the, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is one of the, that and uh, Requiem for a Dream are the two kind of famous examples depicting it on screen. Um, mm-hmm. where, where somebody's like awake and receiving ECT and that's not how it works anymore. You get a general anesthetic. Anything else here or should we keep moving? 
Let's keep moving. Okay. So we have... Um, we have the medical attache. The yeah. medical his attache. Wife is washed. This is his also... wife glanced at the viewer. But yeah, by uh, describing, um, let's see, um, an expression on his rictus of a face, I think it's also pretty clear that um, the attache is now dead. <gasps> is he, though? See, like, I didn't like think Rictus, that. Rictus certainly is. I I can't tell whether whether Rictus means he's actually dead or whether it's just a metaphorical description of the kind of like mindless grin he's got. Well, I think referring to his face as a Rictus of a face, as opposed mm. to his facial expression being Rictus. But I don't also, know. The, yeah. the phrasing there definitely points to me that he's dead. But this yeah. is also like this is still just a couple hours after he started watching. So it's not like so, it's uh, not like he wasted away in front of the screen. It's just like he saw if he's dead, he saw something on screen that killed him. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Hmm. He look I just thought that he was he's in like a He's like in like a, a coma almost. Like in a trance. a trance. Like in a he has totally vegged out in front of his teleputer. He is like, like he's non-responsive to anything around him. This is what Kate Gompert is asking for. <gasps> hmm. oh. She says, like, I didn't want to hurt myself. I just wanted to stop feeling this way. If you could put me in a coma or something, like right. that would also that would work for huh. me. Huh. Yeah. And there he is. And there he is. Dead or not. He's mm -hmm. not aware of anything going on, it seems. Unless right. he's still aware of his entertainment cassette. Hard to right. say. Yeah. Mm. Then we got into this really difficult part. I, I found this really <laughs> difficult. The, this the, old the German theoretical guy poetry is... of tennis. <sighs> oh, my God. Although, before we go into that, uh, real quick... I just wanted to do something. Uh, so okay. I mentioned a Nick Bolletieri. So I decided to look him up. Uh, yeah. He was he pioneered the concept of a tennis boarding school. Uh, he was an American tennis coach, and he uh, helped develop players like Andre Agassi and oh, really? Oh, yeah, I had no huh. idea. That's amazing. I didn't know that either. Um, I don't know who any of those people huh. are. Oh, Andre uh, Agassi is one of the biggest tennis players of, of, of all the time. last. Yeah, of all time in like yeah. the last decade or so. He had good oh. hair too. He had mm -hmm. amazing he had long hair. Flowing hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he was young, he had when amazing he young. hair. Yeah. And then when he got older, he was bald, right? Yeah. <laughs> um so we meet we meet Gerhard Stitt here. Mm -hmm. Um right. who is like described as I, I don't know. He comes. He he sounds to me vaguely Nazi-ish. Yeah, is that yeah. Fair? no, it, it it is fair. In yeah, the because I think the, in a cartoon uh, way, it yeah. even said like uh, they didn't want to call him fascist, but he was a little bit fascist or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he'd mellowed some as he'd aged. Right, right, right. Should we actually? Is this the place to talk about the Enfield poltergeist? Oh, or should we? <laughs> I I can't take the waiting. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know. know I want to know about yeah. Enfield Poltergeist. Okay, so 
the Enfield Poltergeist. Um, it was, it is a alleged paranormal event from Brimsdown, Enfield, London, England. Uh, it occurred between 1977 and 1979 and basically was centered around two sisters, Margaret, age 13, and Janet, age 11. Um, in terms of the Creepy specifics, mm-hmm. in terms of the specifics, <laughs> it's uh, what you would expect from a poltergeist. Um, so, for the most part, it was furniture moving on its own. Um, later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children levitating. Mm. Uh, and then from there, you know, um, in terms of the validity of the Enfield poltergeist, um, a lot of paranormal investigators went there. Some of them admitted that uh, Janet and Margaret were pranksters. Uh, over a period of 18 months, more than 30 people, including neighbors, psychic researchers, and journalists, said they variously saw heavy furniture moving on its own accord, objects being thrown across a room, and the daughters seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. Um, skeptics have claimed that the levitation though, was just the, like the little girls jumping up and down on their bed, but because of how the camera was filming, it just looked like they were levitating. Uh, but yeah. And, uh, if you've seen the film, the conjuring two, it is based off of the Enfield poltergeist. Huh? Have you seen the conjuring two? <laughs> I have not seen the, I've seen neither of the conjuring movies. Nor have I. Yeah. Me neither. Hmm. Well, that makes none of us, I suspect. Yeah. Uh, It's probably too scary for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, while we're talking film, I should issue a brief correction, uh, a a mispronunciation on my part in the last episode. I I mentioned uh, Takahiro Imura. His actual name is Takahiko Imura. Uh, Hmm. I regret the error. So I was fascinated in this. I, I know that we learn about a lot about the, the how do you say his name? Shtit. Shtit. We do Shtit. learn a lot about him, but we also learn more about Mario, too, which yes. Mario continues to really fascinate me. Yeah. Um, so we, we learn his age, right? We didn't know before his age. Oh, does it say how old he is? It says he's 18. Okay. Where? We, uh, it's, it's when oh, yeah. he's riding the motorcycle. Yeah, and now it shit. said that Mario is 18, ah, but isn't Hal 17 in yeah. the year of the adult? So, okay, so yeah, Mario so, so Mario's like, yes, uh, yeah, so Mario's a year older than Hal, huh. and, and Oren is, we don't know how much older than the two of them. Yeah. Right. Um, also, I looked up the f- word leptosomatic. The definition was of an aesthetic build, an aesthetic being having a slight build or slender body structure. Compare athletic. Yeah, so like the opposite of an athletic build. Yeah. Like kind of scrawny. Yeah. Is that right? And this is Mario that they're yes. talking about? Yeah. yeah. And the other thing it says about him, it, they describe him as a Brady kinetic boy, which I looked yeah. up. Ooh. Um, <laughs> which, and Brady, Bra- uh, Brady kinetic is... People who are bradykinetic are uh, have a slowed ability to start and continue movements and mm-hmm. impaired ability to adjust body's position. They describe it as maybe related to Parkinson's disease or also could be a side effect of medications. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I believe I believe the, the prefix brady refers to a general slowness. But I also liked uh, in the in that paragraph on page 80 where it, 
where it describes Mario a little bit more. I thought it was also interesting. Um, it says he's a born lister. One of the mm-hmm. positives to being visibly damaged is that people can sometimes forget you're there, even when they're interfacing with you. You mm-hmm. almost get to eavesdrop. It's almost like they're like, if nobody's really in there, there's nothing to be shy about. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's on this page or later on, but it also describes Mario as having claws. Yeah. Right. Kind of, right. I, th- I, of, think, yeah. I think, like, again, I think that's metaphorical. I think he's yeah. got a, a sort muscular... Sort of like CP, kind of like a, yeah. a CP, cerebral palsy kind of, like, contr- muscle contracture or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Um, he clearly falls down a lot, too. He does. We see in this yeah. chapter. Like, the kind of the kind of lovely moment. I I really like that description of of he he his shoulder glances against something and he falls down and it's almost like they're dancing. How Shtick uh-huh. catches him like uh-huh. halfway to the ground. Oh yeah. Like Shtick um, really likes him a lot. But yeah. Perhaps it's mm-hmm. because Shtick loves to talk and Mario is the ultimate listener. I don't know. Right. Right. Is that, um, is that the attraction? I, the, the, the sense that I get from this conversation is that Shtit doesn't, be, doesn't really think that Mario can follow what he's saying. Um, right, which is but, that But goal, Mario, like, Mario can Mario follow can. what he's saying. He just can't express himself fast enough to keep up with the conversation. Right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, Shtit's... Shtit doesn't believe that Mario's like completely not following, but it's more kind of like a Sherlock Holmes Watson Mm. dynamic where Mm -hmm. Shtit will just talk. And if Mario is following, that's great. If Mario's not following, that's also great. (laughs) Yes. I have a question if anybody's interested. On page 82, there's a line that says Stitt was educated in pre-unification gymnasium under the rather Canto-Hegelian idea that junior athletics was basically just training for citizenship. Um, Uh And I wanted to ask what your opinions were on the concept of athletics being training for citizenship. I'm really interested in that. I think... um, I don't know how Kant and Hegel relate to this. Really, we should have Jonathan on to talk about that. Uh, mm. <laughs> but I found myself thinking a lot about the, like, the boundary between, um, like, communitarianism versus fascism in in this section. Like, you're gonna have to say more about that. It, like, I th- I think of fascism as being this kind of fetishization of the individual, like the idea that an individual person is self-actualized and they, they don't, they don't need anyone else. Uh, and the whole point of, of the fascist ideology is to like achieve the greatest you there can be without much regard for the rest of the world. So it's interesting that like the, 20th century fascist European countries also had this this sense of like duty to the state and the idea of the state as the motherland or or something. And I do think that there's a certain degree of like physical education as training wheels version of citizenship 
for kids, hmm. but like, what is that preparing you to be? I don't know. I don't I see it though. I mean, don't you think it's true? You, you, uh, that sports as a training for citizenship, it's probably mm-hmm. why, why sports has such an important place in, in most every country. Sports is a big deal. It's like, Right. You're striving, you're striving to be the best that you can be and to hone your skills and but the the idea of uh playing for your team. Right. Uh, or even like or li- even, in, in the Olympics, like literally for your country. For your country. And uh the the sense of competition of, you know, we're always tr- always trying to get better and and well, now that you mention playing for your team or playing for your country, it makes me question how that fits in the fascist idea. Because if you're thinking about the what's best for your team to strive forward, does that count? It, as seems, fascism? it seems like a. It's kind of like a. Uh, your own personal, like, like if you look at the Olympics, for instance, your personal glory of winning the gold in some mm. in yeah. some event. Also, the fact that you have this personal glory, uh, it reflects well on your country. It's also they they will they will take they will take some of that glow and share mm-hmm. it, even if they don't have any real. Yeah, so so like the the thing thing at stake for a for a fascist country in the Olympics is to prove that they have the best people. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. That Um, all of the people of this fascist government are wonderful and fit and everything, and basically that they are the epitome of humankind and all other. Wow, this sounds really familiar in our political climate. Yeah. You know, the other thing that just, I just remembered this, we have this myth in America that so, so during, was that the 38 Olympics when Mm -hmm. Jesse Owens competed in Germany and won a gold medal? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, we have this uh, myth that Hitler snubbed Jesse Owens uh, and wouldn't shake his hand. Um, that's not actually true. Hitler decided Mm. that he would only shake the hands of German athletes like during the official ceremony. And that was a thing that he did. Um, but he did, he did meet with Jesse Owens in a non-official capacity and like shook his hand and congratulated him. The person who actually snubbed Jesse Owens was FDR would not meet with Jesse Owens because he was black. (gasps) Yep. That sounds reasonable. I thought while we're talking about uh sports as citizenship or uh you know preparation for citizenship i also like there's a sentence on 83 that says a u.s of modern a where the Uh, state is not (laughs) a team or a code but a sort of sloppy intersection of desires and fears where the only public consensus a boy must surrender to is the acknowledged primacy of straight line pursuing this flat and short-sighted idea of personal happiness it's this that we're it's this very thing that we're up against as we move through our pandemic crisis. Mm-hmm. It's what makes us not be able to to play the long game and to be able to agree in any way that uh, that there has to be some team playing if you're trying to stop a virus. It isn't yeah. it isn't each person doing what they think think sounds like a great idea to them. You have to have some kind of uh, community response. I felt like that 
spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and going back a bit, back to 81, um, I think uh, for one thing, uh, the phrase that the Enfield Tennis Academy used to have, they can kill you, but the legalities <laughs> of eating you are quite a bit dicier. That was really um, good. Yeah. That was James O. Is, in Candenza, right? His, yes. Right, his yeah. motto. But also, I think um, on this page, it is useful to point out uh, James O's idea of what tennis is, that mm, it's about yeah. kind of this breakdown of order and beautiful chaos and things mm-hmm. like that. There's, there's a lot of this discussion of like the poetics of tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Both from from Incandenza's perspective and also from Stitt's perspective, and there's a there's a few lines that stood out to me. One is that tennis was no more reducible to delimited factors or probability curves than chess or boxing, the two games of which it's a hybrid. Um, mm-hmm. I, I assume that this is like narration from Stitt's point of view at this point, and he's stating it as if it's such an obvious fact that it doesn't even need any evidence. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, chess boxing is a real thing. That uh, if you don't know about, you should look up. Oh, the, the, it, no. it, it's a it's an actual. I believe it's a professional sport. Um, they it, people two two boxers go into a ring and they box around and then they play a round of chess in the ring and then they box around and then they play a game of chess. And I'm not sure how many rounds it goes for, but it is it, there's there's some sort of scoring system that determines a winner based on like a hybrid of those two events. Wow. So why have tennis if chess boxing exists? <laughs> I think chess boxing is a more recent invention. Okay. I wish I could remember this chapter a little bit better. I read it like early in the week and I, mm. I can't remember exactly, but I, I also appreciated the uh, description of, of tennis mm-hmm. as a game and really all games, I guess, and, and maybe all of life that the idea that the boundaries, you think of the boundaries as confining, but really that's not quite right. And the, I think he describes somewhere that the, in tennis, the player is always their own boundary. And, and, and that idea that there are so, that there are infinite, infinite ways that, infinite things that can happen when you hit the ball and. Yeah. Uh, that that's what that that's what makes sports interesting is that there are always so many variables, even within the rules of the game. Or you could say, you know, in the rules of being alive, I suppose would apply too. That. Mm-hmm. Vinny, so I don't I don't know hardly anything about tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, but Vinny, you played tennis in, in high did. school, didn't you? And yeah. and you and you are from a family that's generally interested in tennis, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. What's what's your perspective on this? Do these descriptions at all line up with what interests you about tennis or has interested you about tennis? Um I would say n- not really. Um <laughs> I mean, I think um it definitely could apply, um, mm-hmm. it, but it, it applies about as much as, you know, it applies to any other sport um, mm. where, you know, like you can say that, you know, baseball isn't about baseballs. It's about willpower and right. I don't know, et cetera, et cetera. Cause yeah. 
who actually knows what baseball is about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, tennis, I mean, the idea that tennis is boxing and chess mush together, uh, that has a degree of truthfulness in it, I think. Um, but in terms of it being about like willpower, I mean, I guess also, you know, the idea that you are your own opponent um, is also somewhat truthful. Um, but, you know, the idea that it's all about willpower and things like that, um, you know, I'd say it's about as accurate as it is to describe anything else. What interested me most about tennis was... I know it is a very individual sport, but at the same time, there is some team aspects to it. It's just like everybody's, there's no like one main player, like with uh, football, you know, you've got the quarterback who's basically like the one player of the team and everybody else is more or less exists to support that one player. Uh, mm -hmm. Where in, in tennis, everybody is much more individual, supporting themselves, uh, being able to contribute their own things to this larger team. Team um, is a lot looser kind of a term. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, you know, in, on a tennis team, you know, there are plenty of tennis teams out there and everything, and there are team tennis, but it's like, you know, you've got two singles players, two double and two doubles teams. Um, and so like, they're all part of a team, but they're all playing their own games. And right. even like they're not in all doubles, out there at the same time. Playing. Right. Yeah. Even in doubles where, you know, you do have two people out there at the same time, you're still kind of playing in, you know, it's, it is a lot more of, working with a team and working with your partner, but um, there still is this individual aspect to it. Right. So, yeah. Uh, did that answer yeah. questions? Okay. Yeah. I, I also appreciate your observation that these, these kinds of uh, arguments about tennis and its infinite complexity and it's, it's, it being ultimately a struggle against the self that those could apply to a lot of different sports and, and just a lot of different things in general. It kind of reminds me of like the arts. I think that one of the ways that I appreciate art, particularly art that I make myself, but also art made by others is that it's a struggle against the limitations of the self. Um, uh -huh. Exactly. There's a there's a Kurt Vonnegut book called Bluebeard that involves a, an artist who uh, studies. I think he's from the Czech Republic or something like that. And, and as a young man, he studies under an old master and learns like the skill of perfect photorealistic rendition. Um, and and he makes a, a a portfolio of his work to show around, and he shows it to a few people who aren't interested, and he doesn't understand because he's got all this technical skill. And finally, someone says to him, uh, "The purpose of art is to struggle against your own abilities. Um, there's no struggle here because you're basically a, a human camera, and I can't see you trying to do anything." Hmm. Um, That's a heck of a thing. I like the just the point that boundaries. And limits can somehow open. It's like it opens up your thinking in a way. If you, mm -hmm. if there are, but and I was thinking about Andrew, your videos that you've posted for your students that don't have access to good equipment <laughs> or the equipment that they would normally use. 
It's more yeah. standard equipment yeah. for making movies during a social distancing uh, and thinking, you know, sometimes the better work comes out of situations where there are really kind of strange and different boundaries that it pushes it pushes you to think in new ways in a different way than if you're just doing what you have kind of always done with this with the equipment that you have right yes i took a class when i was part of the disney college program uh, called Creativity and Innovation. And one of the things that our teacher said over and over again was that scarcity breeds innovation. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so a scarcity of resources or a scarcity of time right. forces you into this greater innovative or creative mode. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like doing art, doing really open-ended art with preschoolers. I really found that <laughs> you get more interesting and interesting process and more interesting results and kids really experimenting more in a way if you give them some kind of limit like okay here's all these things and here's paint and here's paper and we're I want you to use printing techniques mm -hmm. like I want you to use this stuff for printing uh, and instead of just smearing or, you know, and smearing is fine, but just to give a, just to give some kind of framework and then let them set them loose. And a lot of times their products were a lot more, uh, they came up with a lot more different kinds of ideas of ways to do that and, and to, to, to put things together than if you just mm -hmm. gave him, just laid it out on the table, which also has its place, obviously, but, sure. uh, but sometimes those well, and, limits are... And, and Stitt even talks about this. So Mario asks him, why do you let Delint and Pemulus, uh, or why do you let Delint tie Pemulus and Shaw's shoes to the lines if the lines aren't boundaries? Right. And Stitt says, without, there is something bigger, nothing to contain and give meaning, lonely, vertigans height. Uh, which translates as, what does it say, low Bavarian for something like wandering alone in blasted, disorienting territory <laughs> beyond all charted limits and orienting markers, uh, which I really like. I feel like I need a phrase for that in my life. Well, it's that. There it is. <laughs> you just start need to start using that. Yeah. Um, I also want to mention briefly that there's, uh, I think that we're all, so we're all in the same like paperback I think it's the 10th anniversary paperback edition. Yeah. And there's yeah. a print, there's a printing error that comes up a few times in this book. Um, it's here in this chapter when Stitt says, Lieber got nine. Um, and then it's also in uh, all over the place in the end note about Incandenza's filmography, that there are just these uh, superscript ones after yes, certain words. I wondered about that. Um, I looked this up, and it's it's only an it's only a problem in this edition. Other editions oh. of the book don't have that, so it is just a printing error. Oh, um, that's a relief. I yeah. thought it was maybe some cruel joke to yeah, make it, me try to no. look to find. <laughs> I just find Mario so fascinating. I, I mm -hmm. his brother yeah. Hal loves him dearly. Uh, Stitt likes to hang out with him, and apparently hangs out with him a lot if There's, he can. If he can catch him as he's right. falling and prop him back up without <laughs> having to hardly interrupt his sentence, right. you know, they... 
there's also this lovely moment of of free association where uh it's right before he falls down Stitt's talking about um tennis beauty's infinite uh infinite roots are self-competitive you compete compete with your own limits he's talking about that and mario thinks of a steel pole raised to double its designed height right right which is a fascinating image i don't really understand what that image is for in that moment right. but i i do really right. like um getting to experience his mind wandering like that right yeah yeah, and yeah, I really like Mario too. I just, I'm not sure I approve of him hanging out with Shitsto much. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's fair. He might get jaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be my biggest concern. But you know, Mario, he's there's stuff going on. He probably doesn't have a lot of people that want that seek him out. I don't know if that's, that's probably true. Or not, true. So, yeah. You know. mm-hmm. I mean, we don't we don't even really know how much time Hal or Mario spend with their mother. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't even gotten there yet. Um, but yeah, I think I, I would imagine that Mario could very easily feel really lonely in his yeah. situation. Although he seems like such an even keel sort of guy as much as mm-hmm. we've seen of him. Mm hmm. Should we move on then to uh, yeah. to Tiny these, Yule? These things that we're reading this time all happen in the same year, right? The Kate is this Gompert all, and the is this all YDAU? and Schitt and Mario yeah. and, and they're not, Tiny Yule. They're not all at the same time in the no. same year, though. There's not right. all in the same some place. stuff that's happening on April second, and some that's happening on like April thirtieth. I think I don't remember yeah. where I saw that date. Yeah, April 1st, April 2nd, we've got the medical attache. Um, and then I've got a bunch that just has no date. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Which is Air Daddy, Mario and Hal talking about the moms, Hal gang high in the tunnels, Kate Gompert, and Tiny Yule. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I... <laughs> I started reading the section, and then I realized there was the endless note, and so <laughs> I didn't finish this note on the timeline, which is for April 30th, and it's Marat does something. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, so, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so Tiny Yule is, is tiny, and resembles, uh, who does he resemble? Um, Burl Ives? Burl Ives, Ives. A yeah. tiny Burl Ives. Yeah. That's from my days. Yeah. Mm. I didn't understand the point of any of this, except that here we have somebody else who has addiction issues mm-hmm. and has been to detox and... Which, which, so he's joining the crowd of others that we've met who have substance abuse issues. Right. So I didn't, I didn't quite, I didn't quite understand why we had to meet another one. <laughs> another yeah. one. Yeah. Um, although well, I did appreciate his description of his roommate at Happy, Happy Slippers. Oh. Is that Happy, happy Slippers? Happy slip, well, Happy Slippers are the, the slippers that they wear. Yeah, but don't yeah, they the call rubber it, slippers. They call, it, uh, mm-hmm. they call yeah. them uh, piss Happy catchers. Sli- 
Yeah. So the the place I like the description of his roommate, who is just a, it, it's also another just another case of uh, mindless watching of the of the teleputer. Only in this case, he's it's he's just an air conditioner, and it's mm-hmm. the air conditioner. But it's the same thing. He's watching the vents and watching yeah, the, I, I, changing the channel, in, which it, is yeah. really just changing the fan. And I I was particularly troubled with the like the description goes to great lengths to tell us that he's like genuinely engaged and interested. He's not staring yeah. blankly at it. He's genu- no. like he's amused and he's fascinated. <laughs> yeah. That the roommate is definitely in a bad way. Um, yeah. And kind of going back to like this nightmarish quality. There's a really strange bit of description when, when tiny Ewell is in the car, uh, uh-huh. he mentions, um, schoolboys in knee pads and scally oh. caps are playing street yeah. hockey in a passing school cement playground, except none of the boys seems to be moving. Yeah. I don't right. know what to make of that. It's a symbol, right? <laughs> I I suppose, but what is it symbol what does it symbolize? We're all just stuck in this game, but like, nobody's playing. Ooh. Well, and I kinda took it <laughs> I as don't tiny mean that seriously. <laughs> I kinda I kinda took it as tiny Yule's uh perception mm-hmm. of the world is still not mm-hmm. he's still I could see I mean he was just uh, hallucinating mice. Yeah. Yeah, so, he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also, I also grabbed shoes. onto that mm-hmm. because we have a family that lives across the street from us. And ever since the uh, uh, social distancing began, the kids who live in that house have been out playing street hockey practically every day for sweet, like so many, days. like, like probably six hours a day. Um, it's, and like, it's yeah, very impressive. The door. Their parents oh, yeah. lock the door and send them out. <laughs> Probably, although actually, they're, I think their dad is usually out there with them. Yeah, um, it's uh, really sweet. Yeah, it is. I mean, we don't have a. There's not a lot else here except that he's he's going to uh, Unit Six in the Enfield Marine VA co- Hospital Complex. And didn't it somewhere say though that he was headed to a halfway house? That that confused me a little because I then thought it's so. The, East Watertown is the Obvious straight line easement between St. Mel's Detox and the halfway houses, Enfield. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So the halfway house is in Enfield and presumably is at the hospital complex just off of Commonwealth Avenue. Onward. The medical attaché. Yes. Okay. Now has so, many people. So here, before we go on, I have a link that I'd like to share for a video I'd like us to all watch. So that's... Uh, <laughs> An excerpt from mm-hmm. the sketch, The Funniest Joke in the World, from the first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> um, I bring it up because I see some corollaries here mm-hmm. to, yes. to what's going on with the medical attache. It is. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you walk in, you see people who are mesmerized or dead or whatever staring at this at this video. And of course, you look to see what's so what's so interesting, and mm-hmm. then there you are, mm-hmm. staring at the video forever. Yeah, forever. Uh, some of them are standing still. Yes. Uh, yes. That's that's particularly haunting. It is. Mm-hmm. Um. How long has it been going? S- since like ten o'clock the previous night, I think. 
And this is, is mid afternoon of the next day. I thought wow. it was seven. Yeah. Where oh, am I getting yeah. seven o'clock? Okay. Oh, right. It was okay. April so it's Fool's been, day, right? yeah, I think it's like yeah, seven forty five. Almost twenty four hours. Yeah. And Brianna, you took a tally of how many people are in there right oh, now? Oh, eight. Eight people right now. This is referenced in the next section, which some of us have read mm. and some of us have not. Well, uh, do you, <laughs> wow, throwing I think that, shade. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that we should. Is it? What do you think? Can can we just? Brianna and I will probably not have a lot to say, although I oh, can try and remember I, this from. I don't know though. You'll remember this chapter. Yeah, I think quite well yeah. because honestly, when I read it this time. I definitely recalled reading it the first time and mm-hmm. being totally destroyed. I I had no idea who these people were and what was going on and and why this why why this particular incident and uh I yeah. found it all very puzzling. Um, for the mm-hmm. most part, I think definitely when uh you begin reading it, it seems like another chapter of characters who are being introduced that aren't really going to be going anywhere mm-hmm. um but, but then there are by ties. the end of the chapter yeah by the end of the chapter i think it kind of ties in and you kind of start to see how it works yes mm-hmm. it's relating back to several other things that we've read about yeah mm-hmm. so so first of all we should so we it's it's dirk steeply and um uh, and Marant. Ma- Marat. How, how would you uh, Marat. pronounce? Marat. 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 I think would I guess Marat. be. Marat. Yeah. Um. But but not uh not like Marat the the French revolutionary. It's spelled differently. The troubling thing through the whole chapter for me is so how did Marat get there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I they're... find it hard to move on from that question. So I feel distracted through the like whole discuss. chapter because I'm thinking, a... but 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 he's on a ledge, on a cliff, uh, down, well, yeah, down below this steep, gravelly slope, and he's sitting in his wheelchair, and he's got no legs, and he's he's mm-hmm. sitting looking out over the city of Tucson, and uh, how in the heck? Did he get there? That seems impossible. Yeah. Because uh, ship, sh- what's his name? Sh- Steeply. Uh, Steeply. Steeply. Steeply has a terrible time getting mm-hmm. down to mm-hmm. this ledge. He's all mangled and scraped and twisted about, and his and his disguise is all destroyed. And he's. It was definitely a grueling climb down to this little. Ledge high above the the valley, mm-hmm. and so how mm-hmm. did Marat get there? Yeah. Magic, y- yeah. Uh, or Magic. I assume that he was dropped from a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and steeply is is dressed as a woman. Is that yes? Also, that yeah. is correct. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. a very elaborate. Yeah. Dressing yeah, as a woman. Yeah, very elaborate, very involved uh, disguise. And he's apparently been doing it for a long time because he's got all the mannerisms down and, like, checking his his nylons, checking his stockings. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's mm-hmm. like, 
he's like taken on this persona, so he he's been doing it for for some time. Do yeah. I remember correctly that he's wearing like a false nose or something? Or am um, I totally forgetting? I'm not sure about a false <laughs> nose. Okay. Um, yeah. He has gigantic prosthetic breasts, though. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that end up facing the wrong way. And I think he also has a um, prosthetic uh, backside as well. Mm. That could be. <laughs> yeah, that could be. Comfy. Uh, oh, I like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm speed reading to try and catch up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and steeply says, how in God's name did you get up here? And Marat yeah. slowly shrugs. <laughs> shrugs. Yeah. Right. Of course, and I, I believe, is it the first time that I've heard about the wheelchair assassins? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this is the first time. Uh, and that's the, um, that's the, that's, that's the content that's, of the end note. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so do we want to go into that end note? Yes, I think we... So I think that we should go into it with the option to revisit when yeah, it I comes think, up again. I think that would be a okay. great idea. And maybe to review it and see if there's anything else to be said about it when we start next week. It's mm-hmm. the thing that I read the most recently, meaning last night at midnight. And so it's the most mm-hmm. forward in my brain. Right. Wow. The 11th hour there. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> this is why I, mean, I missed the I d- text I did all my reading this morning, reading. so I can't talk. <laughs> no. What? The 13th hour. <laughs> and so the other thing, just to be, so the, so the, the wheelchair assassins, I guess I, I still, um, so I read the end note explaining, explaining who the actual legless wheelchair individuals are and how they come to be without legs. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I still feel like I'm missing the political point of who they are and how they are. I mean, I get that they all have this in common, that they've played this horrible, this horrible game with trains mm-hmm. in Canada, right? It's a mm-hmm. Canadian right. thing. Well, um, specifically a Quebecois Quebec, thing. Quebec, yeah, a Quebec mm-hmm. thing. And so I get that, but I don't really understand they how they have what the political piece is the political point yeah of the wheelchair assassins. yeah 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 i'm also pretty unclear i mean i know it's about uh, uh quebec separation and things like that but i don't know much else and and in the chapter i mean he marat is he's like a double or triple agent or something yeah <laughs> right? yeah he's, he's a triple pretending agent pretending He's pretending uh, to pretend that he's betraying the wheelchair assassins, mm-hmm. uh, and and steeply is what association is steeply connected with he, the unspecified services. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And who are the unspecified services, and what they're um, also a Quebec Quebecy group, right? Because their real name no, is like. Isn't it in French, like the BSS or something? Really, I thought I thought Steeply was American, and that yeah. Well, he might be American. Oh no, but the 
the it's the Quebecois that refer to the separatists refer to the unspecified services as oh, uh, okay. Bureau des services sans spécificité. Mm. So it's the it's the <laughs> name that the Quebecis have given to this correct mm-hmm. to this office of unspecified services. Yes. but I don't understand yeah. who they are. I think they're just a branch of the Onan government. Um, Onan, of course, being, which we finally learn, the Organization of North American Nations. Yes. Onan is a minor character in the book of Genesis Mm. who was slain by God for spilling his seed on the ground. Um, But I I looked into this a little more and the context of the story is maybe a little more interesting than that. Mm. I assume you don't mean wheat seeds no i do not i always thought that this was a like i don't know sort of the sodom and gomorrah like somebody masturbated and so god killed them kind of thing uh-huh. uh, but yeah. but it's a little more complicated than that he was slain by god as retribution for being evil in the sight of the lord and disobeying a direct order from the lord by being unwilling to father a child by his widowed sister-in-law oh. uh, this mm. was apparently an inheritance gambit by onan uh, any son born to his sister-in-law would be deemed the heir of the of her deceased husband and able to claim the firstborn's double share of inheritance. However, if heir were childless or only had daughters, Onan would have inherited the oldest survive as the oldest surviving son. Oh. Oh. So, so it was. There's there's some other. There's like some political financial machinations going on there also. Um, but yeah, so I have not read this footnote. Uh, Okay. What what do we learn about Onan? We learn, of course, its name, um, Organization of North American Nations. At some point, we find out a little bit about the, um, concavity as well Mm. and where that goes. Which footnote? Is it 309? The really long, or 304. 304. And this whole endnote is struck trying to write a term paper, right? He's right. researching oh, yeah. and he's he's plagiarizing but trying to cover up his plagiarism, except he keeps <laughs> yeah, using but not terms. Doing a very good job. I liked some place it, it said that he, he accidentally included some French uh, terms, which his teacher will know because she teaches French, too, and mm. she'll know that he couldn't have said that because <laughs> he wouldn't know how. <laughs> Yeah, so they're talking about continental interdependence. This is like, is this like what every right-wing conspiracy theorist was afraid NAFTA was going to be? Where it was like Mexico and Canada and the United States all becoming one giant country? Yeah, I think so. Except now apparently Canada has seceded from it. Oh, all of Canada or just Quebec? I'm not sure. I mean, it says, and the secession of Canada in toto... Mm. From the Organization of North American Nations. And by the fact that too many prominent figures in recent socio-history of the separatist movement have in the last 24 months particularly been killed in the year of the trial sized of bar. So they have a whole list, right, of their demands. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That middle of the page? Uh, yeah. Uh, demanding... Independent secession of provincial Quebec. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So I think of that's Anglo-American cognates from public discourse. That that would be the French police, right? French language mm. police, right? right? Yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Prescriptivists. Uh, 
Okay, so Total yeah. return of all reconfigured territories to American administration. So it's uh, like the opposite of a turf war, kind of. Like, like they're the, trying to give it back, right? Yeah. It seems like neither, it's like yeah. the, both sides are trying to give stuff back to the and other there's, one. There's some, there's there's a, some like, ideological difference over whether it's called the Great Concavity or the Great Convexity. It also refers to the annular fusion uh, mm. thing. Yeah. It says that uh, the removal of all fission, waste, fusion annulars north of the 42-degree parallel. Hmm. And the secession of Canada in toto from the Onan. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that's, so, yeah, Canada hasn't seceded, but the Front de la Libération de la Québec and the Fille de Montcalm uh, both kind of want this, and they're the ones who are hiring out the wheelchair assassins. Or les assassins de Fatouille-Royans. Royans. <laughs> So who yeah. is, so they've hired the wheelchair assassins? Is that what you're I saying? I believe the so, yeah, because the wheelchair assassins are the ones. There are yeah, definitely the, Quebecois separatists, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're in favor. So they're like embraced that. by the larger mm -hmm. separatist movement. Uh, it also refers to the, the year of the trial-sized dove bar as the, says, um, in the violent and bloody autumn of the year mm -hmm. of the trial-sized dove bar. So what happened then? I, I also really love the sort of euphemism for being assassinated by the wheelchair assassins as somebody heard the squeak. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it in this note where they talk about the, the is it a cult or a game of the endless kiss or is that a different? Oh, okay, yeah, they do talk about the game of the endless kiss. But first, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Le Jeu de Prochon Tron. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because they compare or, it to that, right? They compare the yeah. game yeah. of the endless kiss mm -hmm. is the same as the nasty, horrible train game, mm -hmm. which I can't right. say yeah. in French, like Vinny can. Say it yeah. again, Vinny. Say that again. The, the uh, Le Jeu du Prochon Tron. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I wish you were here um, to say those well, things for me when I'm reading the book. <laughs> yeah. It bothers me when I get to, when I get to something written in another language and I know that I can't pronounce it. I it 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 it's kind of spoils a little bit of it for me that I can't hear it. So, mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> You're Maybe welcome. just say French, French, French. Yeah. French, 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 French. French, French, French. Yeah. French, French. <laughs> Um, but so what I'm interested in is how we all feel that uh, this game of the next train compares to Schitt's view of what tennis is. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I saw some I saw some like a continuation there of that. You yeah, do have, yeah, you that have it's opponents, all kind of about... but you're also your own main opponent and you're. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that uh, the boundaries of each game doesn't, like, the boundaries matter, but not too much, except for in the game of the next train, it <laughs> kind of does yeah. matter a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, it says at some point, uh, Struck writes it, so it might not be quite what was said originally, but the variable of the game isn't so much a matter of the train, but the player's courage and will. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not so much when will the train come and will it get me. It's more how long can I wait and how fast and far right. can I jump. 
Right. Yeah, because you don't want to be the first person to jump. Right. But, yeah. Although, in my mind, when I read this, I thought, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I must not yeah. be competitive enough, because I thought, mm. huh, why not just jump first? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> what would drive them to play this hideous, horrible game? I mean, it's hopelessness, right? It's it's like, yeah. they're, they're tra- trying to find... Behavior find some way to be recognized and valued in a world where there's not a lot of recognition or value to go around. Well, yeah. isn't that what drives Erdetti and Kate Gompert to smoke weed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Interesting. That's true. And yes, so it is described as a cult. It's 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 mm-hmm. a game, right. but it, but like the people who participate are members of this cult. There's a spot on page ten sixty one too that I would just like to it it you know I'd like to know more about <laughs> more about the time and the politics. It says the uh, cell credited with the helicopter dropping of the twelve meter human waste filled pie shell onto the rostrum of U.S. President Gentle's second inaugural. <laughs> um, now there's a statement that's that's quite a statement i mean that if, mm-hmm. if you're looking for is that is that a separatist group that was responsible for that yeah yeah okay so here we are yeah, yeah. i see oh. um the, the, the montcalm cell so different cells they were the, the few, few they i i don't know i don't know who montcalm is um but that that would be sons of montcalm yeah. And they're um, the ones that dropped the, the shit-filled pie shell. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which was darn funny. That, I mean, yes. That. Yes. Um, and then that's where we... That also talks more about the cult of the endless kiss right. there as yeah. well. Um, right. Which is an image that's always stuck with me. And also that I feel like I remember reading recently about some performance artist or artists who who did something like this, um, not at all in the context of Infinite Jest, but just as a statement on the nature of interdependence. I'll look into that and see if I can find that out for next week. We can't really uh, end either the chapter without talking about the herd of feral hamsters. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we definitely need to Speaking talk about that. Speaking of images yeah. that yeah, stick absolutely. with a person, so what's going on there? Um, and the and the the herds of oversized feral infants roaming about are these some yeah. kind of mutant, some kind of nuclear <laughs> accident I, sort of mutants have, or what in the world? I have so are they many questions about? about this, particularly the hamsters, because I feel like it comes up out of nowhere, and there's not really any explanation of what's going on. But, yeah. But yeah, a, a major herd thundering across yes. the yellow plains of the southern reaches of the Great Concavity in what used to be Vermont. Yes. And it descended from two domestic hamsters, Ward and June. Yeah. Like cow weavers. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Beebs family, parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Watertown, New York, which is where yeah. your dad grew up. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The noise of the herd is tornadic, locum. I can't say it. Locomotive. Yeah. Yeah. The expression on the hip. Business-like and implacable. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't, they eat everything as they go, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Probably. Please exercise the sort of common sense that come to think of, it would keep your thinking man out of the Southwest concavity anyway. They're not pets. They mean business. They mean business. Wide berth advised. Yeah. 
carry nothing even remotely vegetable-ish <laughs> in the path of a feral herd. If, if in the path of such a herd move quickly and calmly in a direction perpendicular to their own. If American North not advisable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there's giant fans on top of the walls that, that hold back clouds of toxic gas, I guess, and keep them yeah. out, of, out of the United States. Right, which the giant protective... Athsme, Ath- I think Ath- is how I would pronounce that. Athsme atop the protective walls. Yeah, so what's the story I, I guess with the I, hamsters? I, I mean, if that's, if that's what the great concavity is, then I can see why neither Canada or the United States wants it. Yeah, who yeah. would want to take responsibility for those hamsters, for goodness sakes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have guinea pigs, right, Vinny? Imagine. I, I do have guinea pigs, yeah. Imagine if the herd I becomes know. that large and aggressive. and So and, they're not... Uh, the the hamsters themselves are just normal sized hamsters though. Yeah, it's just yes. it's just like a massive swarm. It's like those those uh, ant migrations where uh, like a millions of ants will run through oh, a village. Okay. Oh, okay. So they're just regular sized hamsters. <laughs> yeah, they're regular sized hamsters. There's just a whole lot of them and they're feral. <laughs> but then there's also a feral there's toddler. A feral group of- there's feral, yeah. somewhere it mentions, it's in I the footnote on page giants. 1056, herds of oversized feral infants, the massive feral infants formed by toxicity and sustained by annulation, however, are, this is why this took so long to read, from the mm-hmm. Vulgate perspective of this year of the Whisper Quiet Maytag Dishmaster, essentially passive icons, the experialist gestalt. So that's another oh, year it says, entirely. Yeah. Uh, here, here it talks mm-hmm. about the oversized infants reputedly do exist, are anomalous and huge, grow but do not develop, feed on the abundance of annularly available edibles the overgrowth periods in the region represent. Do deposit titanically outsized scat and presumably do <laughs> crawl thunderously about. Occasionally hmm. sallying south of murated retention lines and into populated areas of New New England. <laughs> yeah, large infants crawling about. Yeah. So I, I have to say, I don't understand what annular means in any of these contexts that it's being used here. No. Me neither. No. Uh-uh. You said it was like rings. Right? Or like yeah, let me, let me look that up really annular. quick. Annular uh, is uh, of relating to or forming a ring. So not necessarily mm. concentric, just a ring oh, shape. a ring. Okay. Mm. Or banded or marked with circles. So it could mean concentric, but it doesn't necessarily mean concentric. I don't really know what to do with that. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't, don't know, know what, what to do with yeah. any of this. Any of it, of I also of don't that. know like whose perspective we're looking at this from either. Like when when we're talking about the herd of feral hamsters, it's not being narrated from a, part- a particular character's point of view. It's like one of the few instances I think we have so far of just kind of a a god's eye narrator swooping in and saying like, meanwhile. 
far away from everything else, this is happening. Yeah. Right. It seems like things did come together in here. They talk about the medical attache. Yes. Right. Yeah. And they do say that the medical attache and all of the other people who were caught in the videotape are dead. Does, oh, do he, they? does it say that they're dead? I didn't remember that. They said there were 23 thought, of them now. Yeah. And somehow, of them. Somehow, the, the, and, oh, somehow the wheelchair assassins had something to do with the mailing of the, of the cassette. Is that true? Mm. Yeah. Steeply or steeply accuse or intimates that, you know, this weird thing happened. Somebody, somebody. Like maybe you guys sent it um, out of they, he says out of commission. Describe them as out of commission. Hmm. A cartridge copy of a certain let's call it between ourselves the entertainment. Yeah. As in the mail, without warning or motive, out of the blue. Where does the the term the entertainment come up for the first time? Uh, Aha, page I ninety, yeah, at the top, <laughs> they describe it as the entertainment in quotation marks. Yeah, uh, the local constabulary okay, were, shall we say, unprepared for an entertainment like this. Right. And yeah, I guess yeah, they, they say, are not described as casualties. Yeah, out just of out, commission. Out of commission. Out of commission. What does that mean? Yeah. The attaché and his wife. Four more raggers, all with embassy cards, a couple neighbors or something, the rest mostly police. This is the mm. part that looks like the funniest joke in the world. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. It seems like there was some other tie to something else that there we read is, about. What yeah. was it? There was something um, else that I thought, oh, but... Yeah, later on it mentions the robber from right. previous week. And abruptly, Monsieur Duplessis has now passed away from life. This is on page 94. Right, right. Under right. circumstances of most ridiculous suspicion, um, an inept burglary and gripe indeed. Mm. Right. Oh, so, so Duplessis is the, the... He was the sickly, victim. The victim the, of Gately the and... Cold, the head cold guy. Yeah. Quo Vadis, whatever his name was. Uh -huh. Right. So were they somehow involved in that too? But that didn't. That seems unlikely. Or that was also just a. You, a, you mean involved in the home invasion? I think yeah. I think that was a. The, a the Gately in there was a coincidence. It was just so a I, coincidence. Yeah. But Duplessis mm. was somebody that they. He was important he was to the AFR. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that was mentioned when his home was getting invaded, kind of yeah. offhandedly. My cat is stealing candy eggs out of a bowl on the table. <laughs> wow. He, no, he, no. he gets them out and he bats them around and he throws them on the floor and chases them all over the house. <laughs> so is Marat going to shoot steeply? It, he seems like the type to just always carry a gun. Is it? Oh, well, maybe. Yeah. There's also a mention of... Uh, Luria? Is that? Yeah, Luria. Who's yeah. Luria? I just see the name. Is there any more about her in this? I don't remember a lot about Luria. I think I just these. She's right at the end, right? Yeah. One Mademoiselle Luria Perec. Oh, they think that Duplessis 
Mr. Duplassus always suspected he tried to hold back on the information he passed sexually to Luria. The reason I bring up Luria is that James Incandenza mentions a Luria in the scene where he's pretending to be the conversationalist. Really? He says, mm. um, do you for one moment think that a professional plier of the trade of conversation would fail to probe beak deep into your family's sordid liaison with the pan-Canadian resistance's notorious M. Duplessis and his malevolent but allegedly irresistible amanuensis cum operative Luria P.? Oh, so mm. she was a... Wow. She's... So, so... Incandenza was a, apparently aware of who these people were. Yeah. And, yeah. and that he implies that the Incandenzas have some connection to them. Mm -hmm. Well, doesn't Avril have some kind of, kind of loose connection? Wasn't it says it that when she, that I she think when a, she was in grad school, loose, she was yeah, involved kind of with loose, separatists. Or she, or she was loosely connected with some who were. Yeah. Separatist. Wait, she's Luria. Mm. I'm just, it's possible. That's oh. just, I'm just throwing things out there. Could be. <laughs> I have no evidence to base yeah. that. So many mysteries. Yeah, so so there's, a, there's a lot of like, yeah, like very difficult to follow sort of espionage stuff yes. happening here. Yeah. Double and triple agents and uh, I, yeah, I can't keep it straight. It's kind of a jarring I mean, the whole book has been jarring to a certain extent, but they're like, it brings in this real political intrigue and mm -hmm. the, the, these factions working behind the scenes and, and under the layers of the rest of the stories that we've been reading about, kind of, that, mm -hmm. there's, that there's this stuff woven in. So it makes me struggle a little bit. So is this like, a, is this book about the incandenses? Is this book about the political struggles? What is it? Is it about, I mean, is there one that one or the other that's more the point of the book or aren't yeah, there really right. any points to the book? I mean, for or, right now, I'd say our main character is Hal Incandenza. Right. And whenever anybody asks me what this book is about, I just say it's about a guy at a tennis academy. <laughs> right, but, right. Yeah. And as soon as I say it, then I try to think back about what we've read. And then I think, huh, we didn't read anything. We about haven't tennis. read that much about right. Hal. Mm -hmm. When he pops yeah. up, I'm, I'm kind of relieved. And I think, oh, Hal, I know Hal. <laughs> Yeah. But the when you read about the the Incandenza brothers, you don't get any sense that they have any particular political even awareness, maybe, do they? Yeah, it's unclear. They, they, I mean it doesn't yeah. seem like they're yeah. of course they're young, but young people are aware of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I, that is interesting because Hal seems to be very bright and very right. interested in in like the world generally right but he mm -hmm. seems to not have much of a political compass as far as we know so far right so i guess it's just this this current flowing through the lives of the new americans the new north americans what do they call them the new usa what do they call them? um the Organization of North American Nations. Yeah, and what do they call the U.S.? The U.S. They have—is it the New U.S. or is it the? Is uh, that not right? 
They kind of obviously yeah. refer to the U.S. of modern A. Oh, oh that's the US right. Of modern yeah. A. But I don't know if that's I don't a think formal I, designation I, or I think, if that's just a. That sounds like David Foster Wallace being David Foster Wallace. Yeah. 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 But we have like new New York and new New England and new. And we seem to have dispensed with Vermont entirely. Vermont. Well, Vermont has been given right, over Vermont's to the feral hamsters. <laughs> yeah. It's a very troubling book, let's face it. Yeah. Like it demands that you think about it a lot when you're reading it. And yet sometimes the more I think about it, the, I feel like the less I understand <laughs> of it. Does anyone have any plugs or special messages to the world, we're uh, we're officially uh, discoverable on iTunes and uh, Spotify. If you go on iTunes or Spotify and search for "small clever rooms," you'll find us. Oh, oh, okay. We've been getting nice. about seven listens per episode worldwide, so you Are know, big wow. numbers. I think two or three of them might be me and my <laughs> tech. One of them process. is mine because Grandma listened to the second to the oh, last excellent. one again. Yeah, excellent. so she heard you all saying "Hi, Grandma!" And Hi, Gladys. She got a kick Good. out of that. Good. And she felt <laughs> redeemed because you guys kind of supported her idea that uh, <laughs> David Foster Wallace had to have experienced some of this. If you want to see my videos about how to make films and edit them at home without access to conventional filmmaking equipment, you can see those on my website at agingrich.com. They're right on the homepage. I heartily um, recommend it. I don't even have any plans to make films at home, and I find them somewhat mesmerizing. So there you go. You should check them out. Uh, uh, Vinny, your paintings are on Instagram? Yep. Yeah, they're on Instagram at uh, CardboardVV. We have a variety of Vinny's paintings hanging around our apartment. I think we have um, – let me – there's – there's three framed ones plus I, I think we have somewhere between five and seven of Vinny's Ooh. paintings in the apartment right now. And they're all uh, amazing and lovely and they make me very happy. Oh, well, thank you. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 87 or 95 to 109. <laughs> uh our music is by David Nichols. Listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. I should make an aside here. I'm not positive that this person is named David Nichols because there's a different name on this on the podcast on Spotify, but that's the name embedded in the MP3 tags that say who made the music. So I'm going to stick with David Nichols unless I hear otherwise. Okay. Okay. Just everybody, you know, stay on your toes and, and keep your ears open. Listen for the squeak. Finally achieved doneness in my sourdough starter, and now it's living in my refrigerator, and I don't have to deal with it every oh. single day. Congratulations! And I baked three loaves of bread. Have you named it yet? Yeah, have you named oh, it? Are you kidding? No. Oh. No, that would be that would be too great a burden. Mm. I suggested jo a name for Jonathan's uh, mm. new sourdough in London. I suggested Nigel. <laughs> That's a very good sourdough. I don't, I don't know if he took me up on that, but I no, I couldn't name it because if I killed it, then I would feel such grief. <laughs> <laughs>